Welcome to the Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number nine. So today, I'm going to continue with George Orwell in 1984. Uh, When we left off last time, he was in his apartment and he had acquired this diary that he was going to start writing in. And it is actually, it's not illegal for him to write anything in a diary, but if he is caught, then it is punishable by death, right? So he starts to write, that's where we left off, the last paragraph of where we left off last time says, suddenly he began writing in sheer panic, only imperfectly aware of what he was setting down. This small but childish handwriting staggered up and down the page, shedding first its capital letters and finally even its full stops. This is what he wrote. April 4th, 1984, last night, to the flicks, all war films. The flicks is kind of like the movies, right? So he's writing about being at the movies, and it's all war films. One very good one of a ship full of refugees being bombed somewhere in the Mediterranean. Audience much amused by shots of a great, huge, fat man trying to swim away with a helicopter after him. First you saw him wallowing along in the water like a porpoise. Then you saw him through the helicopter's gun sights. Then he was full of holes, and the sea around him turned pink, and he sank as suddenly as though the holes had let in the water. Audience shouting with laughter when he sank. Then you saw a lifeboat full of children with a helicopter hovering over it. There was a middle-aged woman, might have been a Jewess, sitting up in the bow with a little boy about three years old in her arms. So... It says this middle-aged woman might be a Jewess. So if you understand where George Orwell had written this book, it was, I believe it was 1947. So it's right in the aftermath of World War II. So this is a boat full of refugees, possibly children. You know, at the time, the Jews were uh, refugees uh, fleeing Eastern Europe, right? So that's where you could see how the audience will we'll read. Okay, so we're going to continue. I'm going to flip the script. The little boy screaming with fright and hiding his head between her breasts as if he was trying to burrow right into her. And the woman putting her arms around him and comforting him, though she was blue with fright herself. All the time covering him up as much as possible as if she thought her arms could keep the bullets from him. Then the helicopter planted a 20-kilo bomb in among them, terrific flash, and the boat went all to matchwood. Then there was a wonderful shot of child's arms going up, upright into the air, and the helicopter camera in its nose must have followed it up there. But there was a lot of applause from the party seats, but a woman down in the parole part of the house suddenly started kicking up a fuss and shouting. So he's writing kind of crazy. What he's writing doesn't really kind of make sense. But basically what he's saying is that uh, the first entry he wrote into his diary was about going to the flicks, which is the movies, and they were showing war films. And the audience loved that this fat man was in the water and he gets shot up and he sinks. And there's a lifeboat full of refugees and there's a woman in there holding a, a son or holding a child. And it drops a bomb on them, and there's body parts going everywhere, and everybody in the movie theater is applauding and going 
all happy, right? Except for this one woman who says that this is not, we shouldn't be showing this in front of kids, right? But then the police came and escorted her out, right? All right, so I'm going to continue. I'm going to flip the script. All right, so Winston stopped writing, partly because he was suffering from a cramp. He did not know what had made him pour out this stream of rubbish. But the curious thing was that while he was doing so, totally different memory had clarified itself in his mind to the point where he almost felt equal to writing it down. It was, he now realized because of this other incident that he had suddenly decided to come home and begin this diary today. It had happened that morning at the ministry. If anything so nebulous could be said to happen. It was nearly 1100 and in the records department where Winston worked, they were dragging the chairs out of the cubicles, grouping them into the center of the hall opposite the big telescreen in preparation for the two minutes of heat. Winston was just taking his place in one of the middle rows when two people from whom, by sight, he had never spoken to came unexpectedly into the room. One of them was a girl whom he often passed in the corridors. He did not know her name, but he knew that she worked in the fiction department, presumably since he had sometimes seen her with oily hands and carrying a spanner. She had some mechanical job on one of the novel writing machines. She was a bold looking girl of about 27 with thick dark hair, a freckled face, and a swift athletic movements. A narrow scarlet sash emblem of the junior anti-sex league was wound several times around her waist over her overalls, just tightly enough to bring out the shapelessness of her hips. Winston had disliked her from the very moment of seeing her. He knew the reason. It was because of the atmosphere of the hockey fields and the cold baths and community hikes and the general clean-mindedness which she managed to carry about with her. He disliked nearly all women, especially the young, pretty ones. It was always the women, and above all the young ones, who were the most bigoted of all the party. The swallowers of slogans, the amateur spies, and the nosers out of unorthodoxy. But this particular girl gave him the impression of being more dangerous than most. All right, so Winston here, he decides that he doesn't like most of the young pretty girls because they were the ones who are basically the ones that they run with the slogans of the party. They uh, are quick to rat people out, right? They're quick to get you in trouble, right? They're the ones that carry the banners and the slogans. I'm picturing this girl kind of like an AOC type, okay? She loves the slogans, loves all that, right? All right. So once when they passed in the corridor, she had given him a quick sidelong glance, which seemed to pierce right into him for the moment he had filled him with black terror. The idea had across his mind that she might be an agent of the thought police. That it was true was very unlikely. Still, he continued to feel a particular uneasiness, which had fear mixed up in it as well as hostility whenever she was anywhere near him. So the other person that, that was the two people that he had recognized, but he didn't actually ever speak to them before. One of the one of them was this girl, and the other one was this guy, O'Brien. The other person was a man named O'Brien, a member of the inner party and holder of some post so important and remote that Winston had only a dim idea of its nature. 
The momentary hush passed over the group of people around the chairs as they saw the black overalls of the inner party member approaching. O'Brien was large, a burly man with a thick neck and a coarse, humorous, brutal face. In spite of his formidable appearance, he had a certain charm of manner. He had a trick of resettling his spectacles on his nose, which was curiously disarming. In some indefinable way, curiously civilized, it was a gesture which, if anyone had still thought in such terms, might have recalled the 18th century nobleman. Winston had seen O'Brien perhaps a dozen times in almost as many years. He felt deeply drawn to him, and not solely because he was intrigued by the contrast between O'Brien's urbane manner and his prize fighter's physique, much more it was because of a secretly held belief, or perhaps not even a belief, merely a hope, that O'Brien's political unorthodoxy was not perfect. Something in his face suggested it irresistibly. And again, perhaps it was not even unorthodoxy that was written in his face, but simply in intelligence. But at any rate, he had the appearance of being a person that you could talk to. If somehow you could cheat the telescreen and get him alone. Winston had never made the smallest effort to verify his guess. Indeed, there was no way of doing so. At the moment, O'Brien glanced at his wristwatch, saw that it was nearly 1100, and evidently decided to stay in the records department until the two minutes of hate was over. He took a chair in the same row as Winston a couple places away. A small sandy-haired woman who worked in the next cubicle to Winston was between them. The girl with dark hair was sitting immediately behind. The next moment of hideous, grinding, screeching as some of the monstrous machine running without oil burst from the big telescreen at the end of the room. It was a noise that set one's teeth on edge and bristled the hair at the back of one's neck. The hate had started. Okay, so everybody in this office in the ministry was gathering and getting chairs ready for their daily two minutes of hate. So we're going to see about this two minutes of hate and, uh, and what it is. It's actually, it's pretty interesting and it's, uh, it's actually not surprising when you think about the type of people that this, that the party is when this is actually kind of like what the news media does every night. All right. So anyway, as usual, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people had flashed onto the screen. So the two minutes of hate, they have this guy, uh, Goldstein, Emmanuel Goldstein, comes on and he starts uh, talking. He's actually an enemy of the party. He's the enemy of Big Brother. So I guess he had left this community and he's been making it his mission to try to take Big Brother down. So they show Goldstein at the two minutes of hate. As usual, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people, had flushed into the screen. There was hisses here and there among the audience. The little sandy-haired woman gave a squeak and mingled fear of disgust. Goldstein was a renegade, a backslider who once, long ago, how long ago, nobody quite remembered, had been one of the leading figures of the party, almost on the level with Big Brother himself, and then had engaged in a counter-revolutionary activities. He had been condemned to death and had mysteriously escaped and disappeared. The program of the two minutes of hate varied from day to day, but there was None in which Goldstein was not the principal figure. He was the pr primal traitor and the earliest defiler of the party's purity. 
all subsequent crimes against the party, all treacheries, acts of sabotage, heresies, deviations sprang directly out of his teachings. Somewhere or the other, he was still alive and hatching his conspiracies, perhaps somewhere beyond the sea, under the protection of foreign playmasters, perhaps even, so was occasionally rumored, and some hiding place in Oceania itself. Okay, so this guy, Goldstein, used to be a leading figure in the party of Oceana, right? And he was on the same level, or almost on the same level as Big Brother. And he deflected, okay? And that's why they hate this guy so much, because now he's trying to bring Big Brother down, and whatever it is, whatever this party is, he's trying to bring them down, and they hate him, right? So he was sentenced to death, but he escaped. So Winston's diaphragm was constricted. He could never see the face of Goldstein without a painful mixture of emotions. It was a lean Jewish face with a great fuzzy aureole of white hair and a small goatee beard, a clever face, and yet somehow inherently despicable with a kind of senile silliness and long thin nose near the end of which a pair of spectacles was parched. It resembled the face of a sheep and a voice too had a sheep-like quality. Goldstein was delivering his usual venomous attacks upon the doctrines of the party, an attack so exaggerated and, and perverse that a child should have been able to see through it, and yet just plausible enough to fill one with an alarmed feeling that other people, less level-headed than oneself, might be taken by it. He was abusing Big Brother. He was denouncing the dictatorship of the party. He was demanding the immediate conclusion of peace with Eurasia. He was advocating freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of thought. He was crying hysterically at the revolution had been betrayed, and all this in rapid polysyllabic speech, which was sort of parody of the habitual style of the party, and even contained newspeak words, more newspeak words indeed than the party member would normally use in real life. And all the while, lest one should be in any doubt as if the reality which Goldstein's claptrap covered, behind his head on the telescreen, there marched the endless columns of the Eurasian army, row after row, solid-looking men who swam up to the surface of the screen and vanished, to be replaced by others exactly similar, the dull, rhythmatic tramp of the soldiers' boots formed the background of Goldstein's beating voice. Before the hate had proceeded to 30 seconds, uncontrollably exclamations of rage were breaking out from half the people in the room. The self-satisfied sheep-like face on the screen and the terrifying power of the Eurasian army behind it were too much to bear to be borne. Besides, the sight or even the thought of Goldstein produced a fear and anger automatically. He was an object of hatred more constant than any than either Eurasia or East Asia. When Oceania was at war with one of these powers, it was generally at peace with the other. But what was strange was that although Goldstein was hated and despised by everybody, although every day and a thousand times a day on platforms and on telescreens and newspapers and books, his stories were refuted, smashed, ridiculed, held up in general for the pitfall rubbish that they were. In spite of all this, his influence never seemed to grow less. Always there were fresh dupes waiting to be seduced by him, a day never passed when spies and saboteurs acting under his directions 
were not unmasked by the Thought Police. He was a commander of the vast shadowy army of underground network of conspirators dedicated to overthrow the state. The Brotherhood, its name was supposed to be. There was also widespread stories of a terrible book, a compendium of all the heresies of which Goldstein was the author, which circulated clandestinely here and there. It was a book without a title. People referred to it of all simply as the book. But no one knew of such things, only through vague rumors. Neither the Brotherhood nor the book was subject of that ordinary party member would mention if there was a way of avoiding it. So here Goldstein is on this telescreen and he's talking about he wants free speech, um, freedom of the press, the right to assemble, all these rights that people have in the United States, right? But the party is totally against it. They don't want freedom of speech. They don't want the right to assemble. They don't want freedom of the press, right? So all these people that Winston is with in the party have been brainwashed by the party of Big Brother. And this guy Goldstein, who they call the enemy of the state, who's been speaking out against Big Brother and the party. This is what happens in uh, dictator governments, right? Now, it's pretty interesting what the media does here, right? This is their newspapers and their media. All they do is they try to downplay everything that Goldstein says. They try to uh, make everything that he says to be wrong, right? And you see them, the media does this the same way, uh, especially how they did with our last president, right? They acted on behalf of the other political party uh, as agents for the other party. And what they did was they tried to make everything that that president did seem bad and they twisted it in a way and they tried to brainwash people's minds, right? To believe that everything that this guy did was bad, right? He could do nothing that was good for this country. Um, the media is acting as the party of Oceania, okay? Our current government that we have in power right now is acting as Big Brother, it's very important that we realize this. And if we take anything from this book is that we cannot put people on power who want to take away our rights to the free press, the right to assemble, the right to free speech. And so far, all of those three things are under attack right now. We do not have the right to assemble under COVID restrictions. We do not have freedom of speech anymore where you could lose your job and you could be kicked off of social media platforms for having an opinion that is unpopular, right? We do not have freedom of speech in this country anymore. All right, so we're gonna continue. We're gonna flip the script. So in its second minute, uh, the hate rose to a frenzy. People were leaping up and down in their places and shouting. The little sandy-haired woman had turned bright pink with her mouth was open and shuddering like that of a landed fish. Even O'Brien's heavy face was flushed, and he was sitting very straight in his chair, his powerful chest swelling and quivering as though he were standing up to an assault of the wave. The dark-haired girl with the with behind Winston had begun crying out, Swine! 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 And suddenly she picked up a heavy newspeak dictionary and flung it at the screen. It struck Goldstein's nose and bounced off. The voice continued, in a lucid moment, 
Winston found that he was shouting with the others and kicking his heel violently against the rug of his chair. The horrible thing was about the two minutes of hate was not that one was obliged to act the part, but it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always a hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces with the sledge of a hammer seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against the other's will into a screaming lunatic. And yet the rage of one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could be switched from one object to another like a flame of a blow lamp. Thus, at one moment, Winston's hatred was not turned against Goldstein at all, but on the contrary, against Big Brother, the party, and the Thought Police. And at such moments, his heart went out to the lonely, dreaded heretic on the screen, sole guardian of truth and sanity in the world of lies. His secret loathing of Big Brother changed into adoration. And Big Brother seemed to tower up, an invincible, fearless protector, standing like a rock against the hordes of Asia. And Goldstein, in spite of his isolation, his helplessness, and the doubt that hung about his very existence seemed like some sinister enchanter capable by a mere power of his voice from wrecking the structure of civilization. It was very possible at one moment to switch one's hatred this way or that way by voluntary act, suddenly by the sort of violent effort with which one wrenches one's head away from the pillow in a nightmare. Winston succeeded in transferring his hatred from one face on the screen to the dark-haired girl behind him. All right, so I'm going to skip a little bit. And uh, the hate rose to its climax. The voice of Goldstein had become an actual sheep's bleat. And for an instant, the face changed into that of a sheep. And then the sheep's face melted into the figure of an Eurasian soldier who seemed to be advocating huge and terrible, his submachine gun roaring and streaming to spring out of the surface of the screen so that some at the people in the front row actually flinched backwards in their seats. But at the same moment, drawing deep sigh of relief that everybody, the hostile figures, melted into the face of Big Brother. Black-haired, black mustachioed full of power and mysterious calm and so vast that it seemed filled up the screen nobody heard what big brother was saying it was merely a few words of encouragement the sort of words that were uttered in the din of battle not distinguishable individually but restoring confidence in the fact that being spoken then the face of big brother faded away and then the three slogans of the party stood out in bold cap capitals War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. But the face of Big Brother seemed to persist for several seconds on the screen, as though the impact it had made on everyone's eyeballs were so vivid to wear off immediately. The big, sandy-haired woman had flung herself forward in the back of the chair in the front of her with a tremorless murmur. It sounded like, my savior. She extended her arms toward the screen. And she buried her face in her hands. It was apparent that she was uttering in prayer. At this moment, the entire group of people broke into a deep, slow, rhythmical chant of B, 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 over and over again, slowly 
slowly with the long pause between the first B and then the second, a heavy numerous sound, somehow curiously savage, in the background of which one seemed to hear a stamp of naked feet and the throbbing of tom-toms. For perhaps as much as 30 seconds they kept it up. It was the refrain that was often heard in the moments of overwhelming emotion. Partly, it was sort of a hymn of the wisdom of majesty of Big Brother, but still more it was an act of self-hypnosis, a deliberate drowning of consciousness by the means of rhythmic noise. Winston's entails seemed to grow cold, and the two minutes of hate he could not help sharing in the general delirium, but his subhuman chanting of B, 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 B always filled him with horror. Of course, he chanted with the rest. It was impossible to do otherwise. Dissemble your feelings to control your face to do what everyone else was doing was an instinctive reaction. But there was a space of a couple of seconds during which the expression in his eyes might conceivably have betrayed him. And it was exactly at that moment that the significant thing happened, if indeed it did happen. He caught O'Brien's eye. O'Brien had stood up and he had taken off his spectacles, but there was a fraction of a second when their eyes met. And for as long as it took to happen, Winston knew, yes, he knew that O'Brien was thinking the same thing as himself. An unmistakable message had passed. It was though their two minds had opened and the thoughts were flowing from one into the other through their eyes. I am with you, O'Brien seemed to be saying to him. I knew precisely what you were feeling. I knew all that your contempt, your hatred, your disgust, don't, don't, but don't worry. I am on your side. And then the flash of the intelligence was gone and O'Brien's face was an inscrutable as anybody else's. And that was all. And he was already uncertain whether it had happened. Such incidents never had any sequel. All they did was to keep alive in him a belief or hope that others besides himself were the enemies of the party. Perhaps the rumors of the vast underground conspiracies were true after all. Perhaps the Brotherhood really existed. It was impossible, in spite of the endless arrests of confessions and executions, to be sure that the Brotherhood was not simply a myth. Some days he believed it and some days not. There was no evidence, only fleeting glimpses that might have been anything or nothing. The overheard conversations, faint scribbles of lavatory walls. Once, even when two strangers met, a small amount of the hands which had looked as though it might be a signal of recognition. It was all guesswork. Very likely he had imagined everything he had gone back to his cubicle without looking at O'Brien again. The idea of following up in the momentary contact hardly crossed his mind. They had exchanged the equivocal glance that was the end of the story. And he discovered that while he sat helplessly musing, he had also been writing as though by automatic reaction. And it was no longer the same crampled, awkward handwriting as before. His pen printing in large, neat capitals, down with Big Brother, 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 over and over again, filling the page. He could not help feeling a twinkle of panic. It was an absurd since the writing of those particular words was not more dangerous than the initial act of opening the diary. But for a moment, he was tempted to tear out the spoiled pages and abandon the entire 
enterprise altogether. But he did not do so, however, because he knew that it was useless. Whether he wrote Down with Big Brother or whether he refrained from writing, it still made no difference. Whether he went on with the diary or whether he did not go on with it made no difference. The thought police would get to him just the same. He had committed, would still have committed, and even if he had never set pen to paper the essential crime that contained all of the others in itself, the thought crime, they called it. The thought crime was not a thing they could be concealed forever. You might dodge successfully for a while, even for years, but sooner or later, they were bound to get you. It was always at night. The arrest happened at night. A sudden jerk out of the sleep, a rough hand shaking your shoulder, the lights glaring in your eyes, and the ring of hard faces around the bed. In the vast majority of cases, there was no trial, no report of arrest. People simply disappeared, always during the night. Your name was removed from registers. Every record of everything you had ever done was wiped out. Your one-time existence was denied and then forgotten. You were abolished, annihilated, vaporized, was the useful word. For a moment, he was seized by a kind of hysteria. He began writing in a hurried, untidy scrawl. They'll shoot me, I don't care. They'll shoot me in the back of the neck, I don't care. Down with Big Brother. They always shoot you in the back of the neck, I don't care. Down with Big Brother. All right, so we're going to stop here. This book is very interesting. We have a group of people that are taking very strategic steps into creating this type of political system in the United States to where even if you, it's not whether you committed a crime anymore, it's whether you thought about committing a crime. So you see this with red flag laws. You see this with a lot of Second Amendment laws that they want to propose to where they want to confiscate you or put you in a psychiatric hospital when you'd even commit a crime, but because they think that you might. That's extremely scary. When you hear a politician or some activists say that they want to stop crimes before they happen, it's an, almost an impossible way to have a counter-argument to say, yes, who doesn't want to stop crime before it happens? But until a crime happens, there is no crime. You can't just say, you can't just can't come in and lock somebody up because they're, you think that they're thinking of doing something because they haven't done it yet and there's no proof that they were going to. You're just saying that you think that they're going to do something. Or they thought about it. They looked something up. They researched it. They went and exercised their Second Amendment right to own a firearm, to bear arms. That means that they want to commit something in the future, right? This is the where this is going with the thought police. We have to be very careful. All right, so that's uh, part two of 1984 by George Orwell. We will be continuing. We'll be doing a part three, part four, part five, part six until basically we cover the whole book. I'm not going to read all of the book. I'm going to skip around, but there's a lot in here that I want to cover. So 
be on the lookout for those. I'll put them in a playlist. It'll be titled George Orwell 1984 with all of the episodes related to that. Uh, the next episode I'm going to do, the next transmission is going to be on artificial intelligence. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for watching, listening. Uh, hit like, subscribe, and share. And write in the comments that you did so. And I'll give you a shout out the next transmission. Thank you for listening and watching. This is Flip the Script Podcast out.